0: If you have a Bible, we're uh, going to open them up and uh, talk through some scriptures today. And uh, we're walking through the book of Matthew. And right now we're in uh, a part of Matthew where Matthew, the who writes this gospel, includes these five long discourses, five long speeches that Jesus gives. And we're in the middle of the first one which has been titled the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in the beginning of it, which is called the Beatitudes, which is a Latin word uh, referring to blessings, because each of these nine statements that Jesus begins his sermon with, which is uh, an accepted way of beginning of speech in the ancient Near East, these nine statements of blessings that Jesus gives all begin with the words, blessed are those, or blessed are they, those kinds of words, and Jesus is pronouncing blessings on people. Uh, so these are an accepted way of, of speaking or understanding Um, the world or understanding religion in the ancient Near Eastern world. What's remarkable in these is the the things that Jesus says and how unconventional Jesus' blessings are that he gives. And so today, as we've been walking through these uh, a little bit at a time, uh, today we're going to be in verse uh, 5 and 6. It's Beatitudes number 3 and 4, but uh, verses number 5 and 6. If you have a Bible, you can read it or on your phone or on the screen as well, so... Uh, Let's read it all together and then uh, um, pray and then we'll talk about some observations and what this means in our life today. So, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. That's the first one. Second one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, family as a church, and we thank you for new birth. And we pray that this new birth uh, would be born in each of us in a, in a spiritual sense today uh, through the uh, application of your word to our lives. Uh, may you open our hearts to what you have to say to us today uh, and guide us into your truth, uh, which brings life to us as, as human beings. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, each of the Beatitudes comes in a context um, of Jesus uh, giving these statements. And, and to separate the Beatitude from the concept, uh, then we start going into errors of understanding and errors of application. Uh, for instance, if we were to separate this from Jesus saying it himself, we may say, blessed are the meek, and therefore we should try our hardest to be meek, because then you will inherit the earth. Because then when um, whoever owns the earth dies, we get it right? And and I don't know who owns it uh, right now. Um, I would say the Miami Heat, but so, uh, I'm kind of excited for that game this afternoon, Um, but so, blessed are the meek, and uh, for they shall inherit the earth. And so, but it's, it's we don't apply them as things that we're seeking or as laws that we're trying to follow or as rules that we follow so we get a a treat at the end or a a bonus at the end of everything. It really is what we understand the Beatitudes is to be characteristics of Christian life. And so these are words that describe people who follow Jesus. And the word Christian in our culture has a lot of baggage with it and means a lot of different things. And when we use it we we mean the people who follow the ways and teachings of Jesus. And so not everybody who says, yep, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, that doesn't necessarily mean Christian in the way that I'm using the word today. When we talk about following the ways and teachings of Jesus, that's what we mean, alright? Believing in God is nice. Lots of people believe in God, but following Jesus is, is an entirely different thing, and that's where the word Christian in its original form, born in the city of Antioch, that's where it comes from. Um, so... Uh, here's let's talk about meek. Meek does not mean weak, okay? You um, we, we have an image probably when you think of meek, right? And it doesn't mean like the pansy. Uh, it doesn't mean it, it's not um, like a passive aggressive kind of thing, like oh, I can't do that, I'm, I'm just meek, right? Like, that's, uh, that, that's not including this. It really is uh, like a gentle or a humble person when humility seems to be a theme in what Jesus is talking about. It, it's almost like someone who's strong enough not to have to display their strength, or someone who's strong enough to be able to restrain. There's lots of people who can punch their way through the problems, but to be able to have the ability to punch your way through your problems and not that's stronger than the person who just uses their fists to solve all of their problems. It really is taken, uh, when Jesus talked about this, he talks with a, a Jewish audience who's listening. And the Jewish audience, for them, their songbook, like when they got together for church, their songbook is included in our Bible. It's called Psalms. This is Psalm 37, okay? Uh, 10, 11, and 12. And you'll recognize 11 because Jesus basically quotes it. Uh, Psalm 37 says this, Um, in just a little while the wicked will be no more Uh, though you look carefully at his place he will not be there And the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Uh, But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Uh, Kind of a fun song, right? Uh, probably This would be like more of a metal song today. uh, That the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees his day coming. Um, But right in the middle of that it says, The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And there's this... um, understanding as jesus read that to jewish people in a jewish context and this jewish song where the land actually meant somewhere what we call israel today or the country of israel today basically is um, that land and so when they talked about the lord giving them the land They were thinking the actual piece of dirt, like they could hold it up, that God is going to give this to the meek. And that's what the Jewish people were thinking. Now what Jesus did, and this is the story of the Old Testament, is God blesses through the physical blessing of promised land. Uh, We know the story of God's people. Well, maybe you don't. The story of God's people is leaving the Exodus, leaving Egypt, leaving slavery, moving into freedom in the promised land. And it's a long, more than 40-year journey that happens to these, these people as a people group as they move from slavery to freedom which is a, the same story that we experience as people who follow Jesus as we move from slavery to sin to freedom in Christ. All right? and That's the way that we describe these things and understand them. We make this movement and in the Old Testament there was an actual physical movement we're in the country of Egypt we're going through the wilderness to the land that God promised us and what Jesus does through his life, his death, his burial and resurrection is kind of free the gospel or free the love of God from its attachment to an actual physical land and an actual like singular people group of the Israelite people to where God's gospel, or his message of hope, is actually inclusive of all people everywhere, no matter what land you live in, or you live on, and no matter what creed you're in, or what religious preference you were raised in, the message of the gospel is available to you. And so you don't need, this was the first conflict in the, well, sorry, no, the first conflict in the church was over food, of course. The second conflict in the church uh, was about, do you have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? This is in Acts chapter 15, and they decided, no, you don't, which is why the vast majority of you are allowed to be Christians. If in Acts 15 they said, no, we're not here this morning. We were here yesterday morning. Uh, And so there's this, um, this opening up of the gospel and this freeing it from the land that Jesus does and so when he talks about the meek shall inherit the earth which some Bibles say inherit the land it actually is not referring just to an actual peace this doesn't mean all the meek people need to move to Israel what it means is the blessing of God the actual blessing of God is given to people who are meek and people who are meek are the people who are Christians it's a description of a Christian to be strong enough but to be even stronger to not have to depend on your own strength Christians are people who can handle it on their own but are so strong they don't need to handle it on their own Christians are people who are powerful enough to respond and solve the problem but are so powerful that they don't need to aggressively take on their problems by themselves. They don't need to take care of things in their own strength, because the strength that is in them is the strength of God, which allows them to rely on something that is more powerful than themselves. This is a description of a Christian in this verse, alright? So in Jesus, all people everywhere have the gospel, the message of hope in Jesus, available to them. Uh, Instead of one people in one place, it's all people in every place. And in Jesus, there's this movement of God from a singular Israelite people group to a massive worldwide view in Jesus and in this church that follows him afterwards. When they would read Psalm 37... What they were thinking is, we would be meek in the face of wicked people. And the wicked people are the people who oppress the people who are chosen by God. And But when they thought of that oppression, it was the people who actually were invading them or starting wars against them. And they were responding in meekness to them. Now if you read the Old Testament, they were meek, but they carried a sword. All right. Uh, This is like in the Old Testament is not a story about the Israelite people going, Oh, please, can we have our land? It's a story about the Israelite people marching around Jericho, the walls falling down, and them killing every living thing that's in that city. All right. It's insanely violent. So, this isn't a verse that says all Christians need to just shut up and let the world run itself. All right. This is a verse about the way that Christians go about the business of God. That it's not that we sit back and say, oh, we're not going to do anything. It's that we don't do things on our own. Or we don't do things in our own strength. If if you think about that story of Jericho, if you've never heard this, Jericho is the first major city that they took when they were taking the Promised Land. They march around it for seven days blowing horns. It's the dumbest plan in the history of the world, all right? Uh, Like, it's basically a parade around the outside of the city. and, And honestly, you don't need to do this. But then on the last day, there's this miraculous wall crumbling thing that happens, and they roll into the city and take over. The point of the story is not that they followed God's weird military plan and it worked, it's that they followed the plan that God gave them instead of the plan that militarily worked. Like, when we invade countries that we need to invade, Iraq, Afghanistan, those things we don't set up a parade, right? Like, step one of taking Baghdad is we're going to blow horns around the outside of Baghdad and do this marching thing. It should be really effective, but we don't do that. But the Israelite people were following the lead of God, and God specifically said, do this. And so they did this and operated in the strength of God, which is a demonstration of... Having the strength to be able to do things on their own, but not needing to do it. In that particular case, they actually had spies be able to infiltrate the city. Uh, They were like inside and outside and able to move back and forth. And so they could have just invaded the city from the inside and took it. They could have. Like they had the military ability to do that and yet they followed the leading of god instead of moving forward on their own strength or their own plan even if their own plan seemed from an earthly sense to make sense to them verse six says this blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied all right hunger and thirst Obviously, refers to like a craving. All of us, and in ancient Near Eastern literature, hunger would have been very like. It wasn't a metaphor. Like if you said, "I'm hungry," you say, "I'm hungry." All right. You wouldn't say, "I'm starving for affection." All right. No, that's a metaphor. If you're starving for affection, it means you want to eat an affection. All right. Uh, They didn't use metaphors. Now, the word thirst, they would use uh, metaphorically. They would say, "I'm thirsty for some affection." which would just be awkward so don't use that Um, but hunger would have been literal thirst would have been more of a metaphorical sense that they would have used these two words in their culture and so those who literally and metaphorically are craving righteousness and righteousness is the right things for the right reasons so we're talking about this in being um, like the justice of God it also refers to, like, the, the uh, impending victory. Uh, not even impending. The victory of God. It refers to um, the deliverance of God. And so not only are we talking about the meek who will inherit the earth, but blessed are those who literally and figuratively are looking for and craving the deliverance of God, the justice of God, the salvation of God, for they shall be satisfied. For those people who crave that, will find satisfaction they will if you crave righteousness you will find satisfaction in righteousness and so we seek it with all of us we crave God's work and and this righteousness so that you understand this we are people who follow Jesus Christians are considered righteous in God's eyes But it's not because of something that you've done, all right? Like you don't work really hard and then you are righteous. Or I followed God's plan or I went to church or I prayed three times or I read through the whole Bible that doesn't earn you the, the title of righteous. God's righteousness is actually given to the people who follow him. And so Christians here are described as people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who hunger and thirst not... Working harder, but hunger and thirst for the gift that God gives, this righteousness, deliverance, salvation, victory. Um, This is, we crave the victory of God. We seek. What I want, literally and metaphorically, is the victory of God. And not just victory of God in our world, but victory of God in my own self at the same time. So, which of course makes you want to talk about atonement theology, right? Um, no, no amens there. Alright. Uh, <laughs> let me talk about atonement theology. Uh, atonement theology is how we take, how we uh, talk about the work that Jesus did in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's how we talk about that in reference to uh, what it does. Uh, here's some examples. You say, Jesus died on the cross and rose again to pay the price uh... for my sins theologically what you're saying is what happened on the cross and in that whole event is a payment uh... which would be called the ransom theory a payment was made to someone or to something so that i could be forgiven or you would say jesus took my place dying on the cross this is a substitutionary theory where what i deserved was death and separation from God which is what death is and instead Jesus took my place all right Uh, or punishment was required like there must be punishment in order for justice to be served because of my sin and that's what the cross is where God takes wrath or Jesus takes God's wrath upon himself this is the penal view all right the most popular like if you came to my house and grabbed my theology books my systematics off the shelf all of my systematics that I have uh, systematic theology is a big book about uh, what we believe about what the Bible says all of them take primarily the penal substitutionary view all right um or penal satisfaction, depending on how you want to talk about it. Um, but all of them take this view. And, and the thing about atonement theology, this view is kind of the new one, and, or new, <laughs> the last 300 years, all right? Uh, that's new in theology. So. Um, all of, when we talk about what happened on the cross, the reason that this is important is because it affects the way that we live in response to the cross right. there's uh, theories of the atonement that talk about um, the moral influence theory or the example theory where what Jesus did was set up an example of laying down his life for our friends so that we as Christians in turn lay down our life for our friends right. the thing about atonement theologies and we're going to talk about one called Christus Victor in just a second all of them have truth in them but if you run to extremes with all of them you start to get in trouble like if all jesus did was set up an example then salvation in the way that we understand it doesn't work or if all jesus did was pay the price for my sins then there is no like imputation of righteousness to me if that's all that he did And so when we have these theologies, and you can go, I mean, there's whole denominations built on these. It's a lot lot of fun, you know, if you've been to denomination meetings. Um, That's sarcasm. Um, And so if you understand these uh, things to be the only way that's true, uh, you start to get in trouble. Because with many things, when we talk about what Jesus did on the cross, there's an element of beauty to that. All right? Uh, And here's what I mean. In the early 90s, I discovered a song by a band called Run DMC, and it was called Down with the King. It was the first. uh, Does anybody know that song? All right. Represent people who wore baggy pants in the 90s. Um, And now realize that's impractical. So, it was, for me, the first. Uh, rap song which was hard and aggressive and worshipful all right which many people may not think that but for me it was a christian song uh whatever that means uh it was a worship song especially the third verse is a worship verse about jesus and about god in his kingship all right sung by run dmc and now i had plenty of christian rap bands and i had their albums or (laughs) i had their tapes and uh, uh and, and, and they're good and they're nice and stuff like that, but all of them were nice enough for church. Run DMC was not nice enough for church. And it was, so it was, uh, and, and I would not explain it in this way, but it was the most wonderful song, the most beautiful song that, that ever existed for me in the early 1990s, all right? Now, this does, if, if I were to um, tell you the lyrics, you could not understand the whole beauty of this song, right? If I were to play it, it's on YouTube now. And if you watch it on YouTube, you would not understand because you need to listen to it in a yellow Sony Walkman with those yellow earphones, right? And now we wear white ones. <laughs> Trendy. Um, but the cool ones go over your head and they're yellow. but And it's waterproof. Remember, did you have that? But you never put in water because you didn't believe them? Uh, so... If, if you listen to it on a Sony Walkman you still wouldn't understand it because in verse 1 they insult MC Hammer and so you need to go through just like over and over and over again listening to you can't touch this for like two years and people telling you this is good music in order for you to understand how it's not good music and, and understand Down With The King being uh, an effective worship song and so I can describe this beauty to you but you can't grasp it just from the lyrics or just from the cultural implications or just from the experience of listening to this song, right, And this happens for all sorts of things if we want to talk about the beauty of a particular sports team or a particular band or an artist you can't really grasp the whole of the beauty in only one viewpoint because things that are truly beautiful have multi-aspects to them and the work of Jesus has multiple aspects to it the very first atonement theory that ever came is established by a guy named Origen followed up by, with a guy named Irenaeus alright Irenaeus uh, well, I think he's kind of one of the best theologians uh, from the early church uh, and then um, like confirmed by Gregory of Nyssa if you're into those kind of guys alright Origen and Irenaeus uh, if you're a Christian you should write those down and remember those names okay Origen bit of a goofball uh, Irenaeus good guy Also, a bit of a goofball, (laughs) but but someday some people will call us goofballs too. Um, This theory is Christ is victor, and what the theory of the atonement is is that the beauty in the atonement is in the victory of Christ, in Christ's death, life, death, burial, and resurrection is the beauty of Christ's victory, and as we describe the beauty of what happened on the cross, we describe this aspect of it. And this is the first atonement theory that the church came up with. Like after Jesus was gone, the first way that we tried to describe this is in this Christ uh, victor. And not just victory over like Satan, but victory um, not just over something, but victory into justice and into righteousness and into peace. And so it's, it's Christ doing this work in a way that is able to give righteousness. And so those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it is there and available and free because of the previous victory and the pre-established victory of Christ. Um, let me I want to read you this book. Uh, if you like to read, grab this. It's by Scott McKnight, who's a professor. It's called A Community Called Atonement. If you didn't write that down, I can... Uh, get it for you later. He quotes Irenaeus, and if you quote Irenaeus, you're one of my favorite people, um, which is uh, so far one. <laughs> he quotes Irenaeus, who was a early early church theologian, like in the year like 100. Okay, said this: since the Lord has thus, uh, sorry, since the Lord thus has redeemed us through His own blood, giving His soul for our souls, His flesh for our flesh, and has also poured out the Spirit of the Father. For the union and communion of God and man, imparting indeed God by two men, by means of the spirit, on the other hand, attaching man to God by his own incarnation, and bestowing upon us at His, at his coming immortality durable, durably, excuse me, and truly by means of communion with God. What this says is, through Jesus, God. Becomes united with man by the Holy Spirit. Man becomes united with God through the Incarnation, which is the physical, fleshly living out of Jesus' life. Union with God. And when we read the Gospel of Matthew, from the very beginning, Jesus is described as Emmanuel, God with us. And satisfaction comes from God with us. When we feel satisfied, we feel satisfied because of our union with God. And this does not mean that God and man become one. We do not become unified with God in the way that the Trinity is unified. But we become connected in, the, in, a, in a spiritual, emotional, physical, mental, everything way. In a way that we can call this union and communion. This is Irenaeus' theology, which is just fantastic. But... Um, uh, if you're interested in that, you can check my blog. Uh, so, but if you want to experience satisfaction, the place that you experience satisfaction is when you are with God. And so, this is why when you're reading your scripture, or when you're praying, or when you're singing in church with people around you, there's sometimes when you just feel like God's there with you, And in those moments, you think, I want this all the time. And maybe you've never experienced this. Maybe you experience this almost all the time. But if you do, and you experience with God, you start to crave it. You see, I don't, uh, this is why I never tell people, you need to read the Bible more. You need to do this more. Because I think if you did it, and you experience life with God... I could tell you to stop and you wouldn't because life with God becomes this thing that we crave and we want more and more and more. We hunger and thirst for this righteousness and so the blessing of God is available and true for the meek and the righteousness and satisfaction of God is available and true for those who crave it. Because those who have it and experience it, experience satisfaction and then crave satisfaction. It's a wonderful thing to have a craving to something which is free and available at all times. So that your craving is eliminated because your satisfaction is available. And then your craving grows because the satisfaction is so great and the satisfaction grows. And this is what we call depth and intimacy with God. We're going to sing together here in just a second. And what I want you to do is take this as, a, as an opportunity to experience with God. We're singing with the people around us, and I understand that. But in this moment, I want to invite you, and you don't have to do this, but I want to invite you to experience God. The band's going to go up on stage too. I want you to invite you to experience God with you. The Bible teaches us that when we praise God actually inhabits Our worship. And whatever that means, we know that it means that God is with us. So let's stand together, all right? We'll pray first of all. And then we'll sing together, united together, and also united to our God. Our Jesus, uh, we thank you for living on this earth in order to unite us with God. And God, our Father, we thank you for your spirit that unites you with us. And we pray that your spirit would live in us as a group, as a community, as a church, but also that your spirit would live in us as individuals. That we would open our own individual heart to you and respond to your offer of salvation. Turn from our attempts to do things on our own and allow you to rule in our life. Help us to fall in love with you in a way that allows us to trust you fully and completely. God, in this place, be with us. And may there be nothing more beautiful than you with us and us with you. Amen.